Welcome to Epidemiology Now. My name is Eunyoung Lee. Epidemiology Now is a podcast prepared for students in Health 323 Introduction to Epidemiology at Queen's University. Okay, hello, um, Health 323 students. Um, this is uh, a video recording on natural experiment study design. So today we'll be talking about uh, what natural experiment is with some examples with Stephen Hunter. Stephen Hunter is a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta. Um, so Stephen, do you want to introduce yourself to our students? Yeah. Um, hi everyone. As Young said, I'm a PhD candidate at the U of A. I work in the behavioral epidemiology lab under the supervision of Dr. Valerie Carson. Um, and really what we focus on is um, really human behavior and like children's behavior and specifically like factors that influence children's physical activity, sedentary behavior and sleep. Nice. So if you have, if you have any follow-up questions to what you're going to hear today, uh, maybe contact Dr. Lee and then we can get in touch. Thanks, Stephen. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your disciplinary training? Are you in quantitative research area or qualitative? And you say you're working with children or with uh, children populate child population, and you're looking at some movement behaviors uh, among mm -hmm. that population group. So can you give us a little um, description of what you do within research? Yeah, so we're, 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 we're a quantitative lab, and I'm a, I would consider myself a quantitative researcher. Um, not that I don't like qualitative, but I do. But, uh, yeah, quantitative researcher. And really, a lot of our, our research is on measuring physical activity. So we're using, you know, pedometers, accelerometers, or self and proxy reports of physical activity. And we will often pair that up with either a health outcome. So uh, an easy one is something like body mass index, but we might also look at things like um, cognitive development or social skills or academic achievement. Um, we haven't looked at mental health, but that, those types of things where you're linking, you know, physical activity to health outcomes is something that we're interested in. But uh, we're also, and me in particular, I'm interested in some of the factors that impact physical activity, uh, especially in children. Um, so a lot of my background has been, and the paper we'll discuss today was looking at school level factors that influence physical activity. But I'm also interested in things like how neighborhoods impact physical activity in children and their parents. Mm -hmm. Nice. And you mentioned that you collect your data um, using self-report or proxy report um, mm -hmm. or a combination of those two. Can you uh, give us an example of what proxy reported data look like? Or like? Yeah. Yeah. So oftentimes in children, um, they can't accurately recall their behavior, especially when you start working with the early years age group, so zero to four years. So we will give parents a questionnaire and it will say something like, 
you know, on average, how much time does your child spend playing outdoors or how much time does your child spend watching TV or how often or how long do they sleep? Do they nap throughout the day? Just these questions that children aren't capable of answering accurately. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, a, that's an example of um, proxy report measures that we would use. Mm -hmm. So it's either parents or their guardian. Yeah. Or if it's within the childcare setting, then it could be the, yeah, it could the be educator. Ed educator. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. basically anything that's not being self-reported. Mm -hmm. So if the participant themselves, the participant of interest is not filling out the survey, then it's considered proxy report. Nice. Okay. Thanks for that. Um, so this week, our students health 323, we are learning about what natural natural experiment is. Um, so can you, and I know that you have some experience in using that study design. So can you tell us a, a little bit about what that is and, and how that's, how natural experiment is different from, for example, RCT or other yeah, yeah. experiment study designs? Yeah. So it's just, so typically when we're talking about experiments, you, you know, you have your exposure or your independent variable and your outcome dependent variable. And we're looking at experiments, we're often manipulating uh, the independent variable. That's researcher manipulating that and then measuring the impact. So that can be an exercise program, it can be a drug, it can be something that the researcher is administering to the participant or group of participants. But in a natural experiment, or you know, sometimes it's called quasi-experiment, um, natural experiments, that exposure is happening in the real world. Uh, it's caused by nature. Um, so we, the researchers don't really have any control over what's happening. We're just measuring the outcome or the impact of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite challenging because there's a lot of timing involved. It's pretty hard for, you know, something to naturally occur in the environment, like say COVID, and then start all of a sudden trying to measure the impact of it because you're only getting like the after effects. Mm -hmm. So typically you want to be kind of measuring and then seeing a change in the environment, whether it's a policy change or a pandemic, and then you're still measuring the outcome. So that's a really good design is where you can, you're measuring, the natural event happens, but you can still see the impact because you've been measuring longitudinally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like in the natural experiment study design, the exposure is something um, just happens by nature. So yeah. I guess COVID-19 pandemic that we are experiencing is a really good example of, yeah. um, you know, when the natural um, condition that just occur, occur. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it doesn't, you know, I think with the term natural, we start thinking of like natural disaster, natural something, but it can be something like a policy change, like legalization of marijuana and cannabis or, mm -hmm. you know, smoking bans in restaurants. 
um, things like that where those are policy changes that are happening um, and those are also considered like natural experiments if you're measuring those impacts as well mm-hmm. right so you know when we think about experiment we think about you know doing something in a controlled condition mm-hmm. right in within the lab setting everything's controlled and there's the exposure that researchers trying to um, impose to participants but it sounds like in natural experiment everything happens in nature and researchers just observe the impact of the, that um, exposure so how do you exactly know that the impact that the researchers are measuring is due to um, that the, the event yeah yeah and that's that's that is a is a very good question it's often very hard to do but um, you know if if you're and we'll probably talk about compass but if you have an ongoing surveillance system where you're collecting outcomes um, longitudinally mm-hmm. prior to the natural event occurring, that makes it a lot easier to then measure the impact of that natural event. Mm-hmm. Granted, there may be other things going on, but because you've measured the before and after, it makes a stronger case that maybe this is a result of that exposure. So really getting that Uh, baseline data collection Mm -hmm. prior Mm -hmm. to you know if we think about active transport like getting that baseline uh, data collection prior to them building a bike lane Mm -hmm. and then measuring the impact versus bike lane being measured and then measuring uh, the after effects right that baseline or the previous the prior uh, data collection point or period is what makes it a stronger design and can give you more confidence that it's mm-hmm. a result of um, the exposure. Right. So is there any ideal timeline collecting baseline data and post-experiment data? I think um, when I th- a lot of times um, for like the pandemic, say, mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone could have predicted that. So to come up with a natural experiment around a pandemic is pretty hard Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. But when we're thinking about policy change or, um, you know, changes to your neighborhood environment or community environment, oftentimes there's a a process involved before it happens. Mm -hmm. And that will give you enough time to kind of see what's going to happen and then try and get your research in order to measure it. I think a really good approach would be to work hand in hand with the people who are making those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, there was a study in Australia that I got to work with some of that data, but the researchers were involved with the the city so that they could get some baseline measurement and then mm-hmm. still measure the impact of this park refurbishment. Uh, and it was done really well. Um, mm-hmm. So really, yeah, any time before that you can, but I think working with stakeholders to get a better idea of those timelines is going to be, you know, pretty important for success, I would say. Mm-hmm. So one of the important things in conducting um, natural experiment is you collaborate 
with local authorities um, to work with the timelines? Yeah, I would say oh. so. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, so you gave us some of your research exhibits. Uh, can you, can you uh, tell me why, tell us why you chose the research exhibit that you provided and can you tell us about the origin of that work? Yeah, so the first uh, research exhibit was um, my master's work. So I got to work with a study called Compass, which is a multi-province longitudinal study in Canada based out of the University of Waterloo. And what they do is they, they, um, they survey students every year, high school students, about multiple health behaviors and outcomes. And they also start to measure um, exposures at the school level, so programs, policies, school environment that are in place, as well as the community level. And so using that data, I was very interested in how the school environment impacts children's physical activity. And with that study, I basically just looked to see that if schools made changes or added recreational programs or change their physical environment, did that actually impact um, students' physical activity? And I found that it's very messy. If you read the paper, the results are very messy. Um, and I think that does reflect kind of real world practice as well. Um, but yeah, I was just really uh, intrinsically motivated about that topic and the data was there to use it and I really enjoyed it, but the results were messy and you'll see some things don't make sense, some things do, but the, the end result is essentially that a one size uh, does not fit all. Mm -hmm. um, and we really have to, when we're working with schools and trying to promote physical activity, like you really have to get in there and figure out what's important to the school, important to the students, uh, and see what can work because just because another school did something doesn't necessarily mean the next school is going to, it's going to mm -hmm. work for them either. Mm -hmm. so. so the ways we can promote physical activity or healthy behavior among um, adolescents could be um, just like school specific or locally specific. Yeah. And, I, and I, in the, in the paper, I start talking about like, schools you know they might use some of their neighboring resources mm -hmm. but if a school say doesn't have the same resources around them that another school does mm -hmm. uh, that's where you start running into problems or mm -hmm. teachers within the school you know simply having a gym is great mm -hmm. but one school might have passionate teachers that are really trying to push programs during lunch or after school and so if you're only measuring the presence of a gym, uh, you're maybe not capturing that important piece, which is the teachers pushing to make things happen, or even at the student level, maybe like the students just don't want to do that activity. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So it becomes very challenging uh, to really try and see how you increase physical activity in adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, so. Right. Um, so you mentioned that the, the this paper, your research exhibit paper, 
the results were very messy. So can you elaborate a little bit more what that means? Like what is messy result? Yeah, because so initially we were looking at it and we were just going to, we were going to group the changes as change to physical environment, change to um, maybe like programming. I'll say that, change to physical environment, change to programming. So, then that, when you, so those two were your exposures? Yeah, so if they yeah. made a change, mm -hmm. you'd give them a one. If they didn't make a change, it'd be coded as zero. Mm -hmm. But as I started looking at all the changes, you would have a school that made multiple changes to their programming. Mm -hmm. And then it, there was just so much diversity in the exposure that lumping it down into just they made mm -hmm. a change or not would have mm -hmm. made it very difficult to like, what can you do with that information? Great. A change to programming. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what programming? <laughs> so mm -hmm. you'll see like the tables are very long and it's because every single change by a school, um, was reported and it was kind of different than something else. Right. So someone might have added a bike rack. Someone may have refurbished a multi-purpose room into a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. Right. Those things are completely different. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't make sense to classify them as the same, uh, right. at least in my mind. Right. It didn't. So, yeah. So changes in programming, some schools only had one change, whereas some other schools had you know, like more yeah. than five changes. So it was really yeah. hard to. And, and, and the question was almost asked qualitatively. So mm. the principals are reporting and they're, some of them are just writing like paragraphs about all the things that their school has done. Mm -hmm. And another school is just saying like added bike rack intramurals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's still good, yeah. but it, it becomes like, okay, there's so much happening in this school mm -hmm. and it's hard to just put them together. Right. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and let's talk about uh, your statistical analysis a little bit um, from mm. your study. So um, you used odds ratio, right? Yeah. Um, and, mm. you know, when you... I think... I actually used beta oh, beta coefficient in that one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when you say um, messy results, um, you know, statistically, can you explain what yeah. that means? Um, I mean, statistically, the results weren't messy, mm -hmm. but when uh, when you look at it, it's essentially, I, I forget specifically, I think there was, X amount of schools that each made a change, but they were each individually being compared to the group of schools that made no change at all. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're comparing each individual school back to a referent group that had no change. Mm -hmm. um, so the analysis wasn't so messy, but when there's so many like variables being included and each school is essentially its own independent variable mm -hmm. uh, that's when you start getting like all like you just have to report a lot of different um, associations there mm -hmm. um, and that's and that's why 
because everything was so different that the schools were doing, mm-hmm. uh, those associations reflect that. And they're, they're being um, con- compared back to that group that made no change, but that shouldn't be confused with, um, it shouldn't be perceived that those schools had nothing going on. Those mm-hmm. schools could have been doing very well with their programming. It just happened that the year that I measured, they didn't make a change. Mm-hmm. And so that's also why maybe some of the results interpret with caution because although they added a bike rack, that could be being compared to a school that has existing, you know, bike racks, uh, fields and everything. They just didn't make a change that year. So mm-hmm. that's, that's in a sense, it's a very like complex um paper in terms of its interpretation mm-hmm. uh, it was a nightmare to write yeah. right <laughs> um, but the analysis i mean the analysis wasn't that difficult once we kind of figured out what we were doing it's mm-hmm. it's multi-level because you have the clusters mm-hmm. of students within schools um, so you always have to kind of account for some clustering there but mm-hmm. um, yeah really the mess came from just so many different exposures. Right. Can you explain a little bit more about what clustering means? So students within schools, what does that mean? Yeah, so normally with a regular uh, regression, the assumption is independence. So each observation is independent from one another. But when you start measuring um, participants that are clustered, say, like in a classroom or in a school, that assumption of independence doesn't always hold up because there's a good chance that those students, um, like those students are kind of related to one another per se. So like physical Mm -hmm. activities at one school, uh, you would expect maybe students in the same classroom to have similar physical activity. That's not always the case, but if you look at something like academic achievement and you're Mm -hmm. looking at the teachers, like students with the same teachers might perform more similar than students from another teacher. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like you're, you're accounting for that clustering effect that they're not independent because they're from the same group. Um, And it's really just allows you to, explore that association with a little bit more precision. Mm, I see. So, you know, when we study adolescents, um, uh, they they are heavily influ- influenced by their peers or that by their teachers or their small, you know, their, within their mm-hmm. school environment or a classroom environment. So I guess when we study, study behavior, um, mm-hmm then I guess that in multiple schools or multiple classrooms, then I guess that accounting for that clustering uh, could be important. Is that correct? Yeah, because it just, it could be important. And even with this, um, this study, the clustering wasn't huge, but because the regular regression, mm-hmm. like there's, you're not supposed to have any sort of clustering effect. Um, and there's that assumption of independence. It's violated um, when there is some sort of clustering. So 
the multi-level model just allows you to get more accurate um, estimates mm -hmm. from your analysis than, mm -hmm. than you would. Uh, and, and some of the conclusions can be misleading if you don't account for it. But, mm -hmm. no. Okay, um, I see. So let's talk about um, your your another research exhibit that you it's it's blog post um, that you published in EPL so Edmonton Public Library webpage. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so that was something that it actually stemmed from some collaboration I had. I started recruiting through Edmonton Public Libraries as a way to get parents of young children because Edmonton Public Libraries is really, they're really great and they offer a ton of programming for um, young children. And it was just a way that I thought, okay, like you can go and recruit from sports programs and things like that, but then your sample becomes, you know, sporty kids and maybe affluent sporty kids. Whereas if you start going through, you know, these free programs that the libraries are dispersed almost evenly across the city, you start to get maybe a more representative sample of people going who go to those programs. And because it's not necessarily like an active um, setting, you maybe get students who are participants who aren't that active and you really want that diversity in your sample. Mm -hmm. or variation, sorry, in that sample. So I went through them and and uh, we started having a little bit of uh, collaboration. I had done a presentation for them and then once the pandemic hit, they reached out and asked if I could write a blog on physical activity, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in that article or that exhibit, um, yeah, I'm just presenting on the new 24-hour guidelines that had come out a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I also gave some little tips about, yeah, what should we consider during the pandemic? So it's just a more of a knowledge translation piece because, you know, parents don't have access to our journals or journal mm -hmm. articles. So mm -hmm. finding other means of communicating, um, mm -hmm. whether it's a blog post or social media, um, mm -hmm. That's probably the way that parents will receive the information. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and regarding this piece, this blog post, um, can you um, can you tell us how it links to natural experiment that we are talking about? Yeah. So with that blog post, I mean, as soon as the pandemic hit. Um, and it hit and then about a week later we were thinking like oh this might stick around for a while and everything's closing and that's got to have an impact on children's movement behaviors so we mm -hmm. launched a study um, pandemic hit what march mid-march we launched we got our ethics in and by april we had our study up and going that was asking parents to report on um, their children's physical activity, sleep, and sedentary behavior or screen time um, prior to the pandemic and then currently. 
So because, like I said, we, we didn't know the pandemic was happening, so we didn't have that baseline, but we tried to get um, parents to try and report on that before. Mm-hmm. So then that's kind of like an estimate of a baseline and then report now or like at that time. Mm-hmm. And then we were going to follow up with them uh, after the pandemic. Um, but the pandemic lasted longer than we thought. So we ended up doing a follow up, um, which kind of worked at the end of wave one, just before wave two. And then so we actually asked some of those parents if they'd be interested in future research. So we're actually starting to see those physical activity levels potentially over like throughout the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So you know, we we might we will be able to see kind of that impact of that very first week or two where everything was on lockdown. Mm-hmm. But also we can maybe start to see some of the impacts of different policies and provinces. And mm-hmm. you know, we have now have data prior to wave two. So that second spike in COVID exposures. Mm-hmm. We were actually now well prepared to kind of see, okay, we have before and we're going to measure after. So mm-hmm. um, that that little COVID piece in the in that exhibit was mainly just because that's where we were focusing on at the time. Right. It's not it's not very often a pandemic hits, and uh, the silver lining is trying to capitalize on it for mm-hmm. <laughs> to to just get experience doing something unique and hopefully important. Um, Yeah. Like if we see that, you know, Mm -hmm. these health behaviors are being maintained in some certain demographics, but not others, then Mm -hmm. we really need to think about how we um, provide messaging to those groups so that, Mm -hmm. you know, they can still be maintain an active, uh, active balance in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and indeed, uh, several papers are coming out um, looking at, you know, physical activity and sedentary behavior among children. And all those papers, they unequivocally uh, argue that physical activity decreases and sedentary behavior. So, for example, TV watching, uh, time spent sitting increases during pandemic. Um, so how do you see, do you think, that will change post-pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it will, and it, it might, and it, it might not. It's hard to say because a lot of organized sports are not happening, so that could be a big source of physical activity for some children. That mm-hmm. Simply because that's not happening, they're not getting that higher-intensity activity. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not allowed to really have play dates with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't have people, you know, even in your neighborhood, we can't really go out and run and play with other children. Mm-hmm. Um, so even that unstructured activity um, is kind of limited at the moment. Mm-hmm. And parents, you know, maybe aren't, like they're stressed out. And so maybe they're not modeling those active, healthy behaviors for their children mm-hmm. as well. But I think, and I am positive, not like confident, I'm just optimistic positive 
that I think things will return to normal if we're allowed to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to tell because we've never really experienced, or I've never experienced this um, mm-hmm. before. So we don't really know what's going to happen right. per se. But mm-hmm. it'd be interesting, definitely interesting, especially in young children. They're mm-hmm. growing up and this is all they know mm-hmm. is physical distancing, you know, isolating. Mm-hmm. And they're not, maybe not developing um, as they would have if they were born a year or two earlier. Mm. <laughs> so it's kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really, yeah. I'm yeah. very, I hope everything turns out well, but I'm very mm-hmm. interested to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, uh, I was going to ask you something, um, but I've got, um, yes. So you've done, um cross-sectional study you've done cohort study um and you you've done you know you've used different study designs in your work um Mm -hmm. and can you tell us what's so appealing about natural experiment compared to other study designs that you acquainted yeah i think the thing with natural experiments is that those are things that are happening in the real world Um, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes when we look at um, if we do an RCT even though I haven't done an RCT but um, it will work for the length of the program but oftentimes we don't really know what's happening it's that adherence or the feasibility of all those resources um, that once that intervention or program is over it's a big question mark a lot of the time as to what's happening whereas when something's changing in the environment um, it's going to be sustainable and it could be for the good or it could be for the bad but I think that piece is what's appealing to me is that these are real world changes we're not trying to you know get the intervention into practice through like multiple interventions trying to demonstrate that it works. We're simply just measuring what's actually happening in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, that's really important. And tying it back to the schools, that school research is, maybe we're learning about what's actually happening and working in schools for you know, what kinds of programs and policies they're doing rather than us trying to think of hey school adopt this intervention it's like no you just do what you do we'll measure it and we'll see how Mm. effective it is and right with with compass they've actually had some success around schools that have um a ban or uh, a vape no vaping policy on like e-cigarette use Mm -hmm. like we we didn't like no one went in there and told them what to do Mm-hmm. They just did it, and we compared them to schools that didn't have those bands, and, mm-hmm. you know, it worked. And right. therefore, it's like the school's doing it. That means they don't, like, it's intrinsic for them. It, they know that it's working. They can just, it's feasible. It's working for them. They can continue doing that. We're not mm-hmm. pulling any resources away, you know, after 
six months or something like mm-hmm. that's they're doing it and it's proving to be effective mm-hmm. so. so it's less invasive no controlling over what's going on um, in real yeah. life situations mm-hmm. okay um, and actually you brought up the important thing about natural experiments so you know some natural experiment studies they have control groups and mm-hmm. some others don't what are the benefits and and drawbacks of you know having yeah, so control having the control group i think anytime you have a control group it just allows you to be more confident that the exposure is in fact responsible for the change that you're seeing mm-hmm. um, because if everyone's exposed then it's pretty hard to make a case for what the impact is mm-hmm. so it's it's really important to have a control group um, and it may look the control group may look different in every kind of uh, research study but mm-hmm. um, yeah like a good one I guess with compass they they compared schools with no policies versus to schools with um, some smoking policies and like really strict smoking policies so it just mm-hmm. allows them to see okay this works right um, so and if if the result comes out as um, you know having sc- schools having um, some kind of you know e-cigarette policies yeah. uh, versus schools that don't have any any policy related to e-cigarette uh, use then mm. and then we found we find that schools with policy students are less likely to engage in e-cigarette smoking then then we can be more confident with that result yeah and that's a pretty low level intervention right you just go to the next school and say hey like we've noticed that schools that have this policy mm-hmm. uh, we see that there's less smoking um, would you be interested in adopting this? And mm-hmm. so it's, it's rather than us going in and being like, you want to take part in this intervention. Mm-hmm. This is what you have to do. And it becomes like strenuous on the school. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's why I think natural experiments, especially in like a surveillance system like Compass, mm-hmm. um, that's just so rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just want to mention some of the other stuff that the Compass system has been able to collect and that's mm-hmm. um, Ontario had, uh, sorry, Ontario had a recent um, legislation that allowed alcohol to be sold in grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And so Compass was able to take their baseline data of alcohol consumption and behaviors in students and compare them in jurisdictions where the liquor stores or liquor was being sold in grocery stores and see the impact and compare it to students in others, other jurisdictions where that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did see that, you know, having alcohol in the grocery stores was associated with people or students who weren't drinking to then having their first drink. Mm-hmm. They're more mm-hmm. likely to have an actual drink and those who are drinking a lot maintain that behavior <laughs> compared to students in other schools. So it's, you're having a real life, legislation mm-hmm. but maybe they're not focusing on adolescent drinking behaviors mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. now we've captured that evidence and can go and say like look for the next jurisdiction you know this is what happened in Ontario 
Um, just make sure you're aware of this when you're thinking mm -hmm. about. So it's just this is real world changes that you're able to capture. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's why it's so important for public health and developing public health policy in that regard. Yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, they were also, because they had cannabis use and marijuana use prior to it being legal, they can now look at that as another natural experiment of the legalization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, does that change, uh, you know, uh, cannabis use and other associated health behaviors, right? So, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, acting timely and having those collaborations to be mm -hmm. able to measure um, is very important. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, there, is there anything that you like to convey to students? Regarding natural Regarding experiment? natural experiment or uh, regarding what you do, your research, anything? Yeah, I mean, not, like in regarding natural experiments, like, they, all research designs are great and they all have their own unique purpose. Um, so don't take it as like, I feel like natural experiments are the best and cross-sectional studies are not good at all because they all have their purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's just that with natural experiments, they're just because they're more real world, um, they're harder to to conduct and there's a lot you need a lot of funding to be able to do something like what compass is doing mm -hmm. but if you can make those connections and it doesn't have to be major but like you said you're you're, you're collecting data in real time on real world changes um, and that's very hard to do with um, intervention research and stuff like that but mm -hmm. um, yeah all study designs serve their purpose and they're they're all very important and a poorly run natural experiment can be less effective than, <laughs> you know, a really good case control or a really well done cross sectional. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is the hierarchy, but it all has to be done correct for that hierarchy to, to maintain mm -hmm. its true pyramid. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I would say about, about that. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess that's the most important message mm -hmm. for me to convey I suppose nice yeah it's great yeah. okay well thanks um, almost a doctor hunter <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, I'll speak to you soon yeah thank you thanks. good luck with the semester thank you